So, all that stuff that we've been looking at in the life of David for however many weeks, it's been I think since mid-March or so, and it's just been rich and true and um, wonderfully biblical and uh, and I want to say for the vast lion's share of it, it's been good until now. And to now, we get to look at David and the affair with Bathsheba. And so you can go ahead and you can turn if you have your Bible, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be doing a lot of reading this morning, and that means that we're going to have to move quickly. And uh, th- th- there are those of you, per- perhaps many of you, who realize when I say quick, you know, if, if it were Pastor Trent and he were up here and he said quickly, it's like, oh no, you know, because I can hardly keep up as it is. There's so much coming my way with me. It's like, okay, Nate says quickly, that's about my normal pace. And so, no problem with that. Um, But we do have a lot of reading in front of us because we're going to be looking at three chapters uh, this morning. We're going to look at 2 Samuel 11 and the fact that David sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned again. And what kind of a groove was it that he was in? And, and almost the deterioration of his soul and of his conscience. And we've got to go down deep into that kind of depravity so that then we can have the Lord pick us up and just launch us skyward in chapter 12, because that's where David, in the grace of God, gets caught. And God goes after him with his grace, with the grace of God, God goes after him, catches him, sees David experience conviction. And then in the third chapter, we're going to see how David turns back. He's convicted of his sin. He goes before the Lord and he says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So we see those three things, that David sinned, that David got caught, and that David repented that he turned. So you're in 2 Samuel 11, I hope, and you know, God have mercy on whoever is going to try to keep up with what's about to come on the screen and in the text here because, like I said, it's going to be a f- quite a bit of reading. So, 2 Samuel 11, and it starts this way. In the spring of the year, so this time of year, the time when kings go out to battle, which was a good thing for the kings to do back then, They weren't going out to battle just because they were picking a fight. They had to go out to battle because they were looking to protect their people. They had borders and there were enemies on the far sides of those borders. And so that's where the king needed to be as a good shepherd was on the field with his army. And so in the spring of the year, the time when kings, rightly so, go out to battle, David sent Joab who is his kind of a 
five-star general, we'll call him, and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And that last sentence, very quick, almost a phrase, is meant to hit like a ton of bricks. But David remained at Jerusalem. He wasn't where he should have been. And I don't want to say that that's David's first sin. I'm guessing he had already sinned plenty, but he was not where he should have been. Lack of leadership. God had called him to be king. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Second sin already. David's not only at home in the city, you know, maybe it could be justified if his rationale was, well, I need to remain back home because there's all kinds of affairs, you know, politically speaking, going on in the nation right now, and I've got to be here to administer certain sorts of things and and, and take care of the court and, and the political affairs of the nation, and so I'm going to dedicate myself to that this year, and I'll send Joab out with the army. That's not what's going on. David's sleeping as king. And I don't know if he was just taking an afternoon nap or if he had slept right through from the night before and was sleeping all day long. But that's very definitely second sin at least. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, sloth, was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Now you need to know, in the Hebrew, there are different words to communicate beauty. When it uses the word beautiful for Abigail, for instance, this would have come earlier in our study, it would have communicated what we would understand as uh, kind of a precise uh, precious, um, you know, you know look, look, look at that woman and her character. And she's so radiant. There's something so godly about her. That would have been the word beautiful and was the word beautiful that was used to describe Abigail. This word is a different word and it would come across in our current vernacular, I'm thinking, as something like, and the woman was extremely hot. Smoking, steaming, you know, want to use the word sexy. <laughs> but that's what David, you know, lust. You know, do, do you see where we're headed here? You see where the groove that David is in here? Third sin. And David sent, I'm, not, I'm in verse three now, three sins in two verses. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, kidnapping. Now you can say, well, he sent messengers. And you can debate, was it consensual or not? 
You know, but the power differential there between, you know, when the king knocks on your door, you don't say no to that. Kidnapping. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Do we call that rape? There are plenty of scholars who have. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. So that time of the month was behind her and she was taking a bath. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, of course. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. That makes me angry. You know, the appearance of, oh, I just have a heart for my people. How are they doing out on the battlefield? I miss them. Go back and commend them. They're doing such a good job. It makes me kind of sick. David asked Joab how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. What? Come on. David's so desperate, you know, and you see it in the deception. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? And David in his mind is saying, Yeah, (laughs) I have to have you do that. But Joab says, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah was a good man. And David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So it's like David saying to himself, I got one more chance. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him. And he ate in his presence and drank so that he, that is David, made him, that is Uriah, drunk. I mean, I've, I've, I've got friends in my life who are not believers yet. Um, but, but friends, you know, part of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, those, those sorts of things. And I've asked them, you know, is it possible for one person to make another person drunk? And they say, you bet. Because it's been done to me. And I've done it to others. And that's what David did to Uriah. I'm going to have a party. I'm just going to keep passing him the glass. 
It's another sin. When you cause someone else to sin, that's sin. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Um, You know, so he commits adultery. He's about to commit murder. He had shared the campfire with Uriah. I don't know if you knew this. Uriah is listed among the mighty men of David. Uriah had been one of the guys on the run with David when they were still raiders. And they're making their way across the countryside. They're fleeing from Saul together. They shared the campfire. I mean, they were... They were brothers. That relationship is tight. I've been around a campfire with God, men from this church, by the way. And I know what it's like when we're far away and the sun goes down and the fire even dies down and how guys open up at that point. There is a closeness that, I don't, you know, 30 years of ministry or so, I don't think I've ever seen it achieved in any other setting the way it is in, that, in those moments. And that's what David would have known with Uriah. They fought together. I I still remember when, you know, doing doing a funeral for a a friend um, who had been killed in Afghanistan. And um, he was was a Marine. He was a captain in the Marines. and, And his platoon had been ambushed. And he gave his life to save his brothers. And I know that because at the funeral, they told me so. And I can remember there were about seven or eight captains, and they were all, you know, fully dressed uh, in, in, in uniform, and standing around and talking with those guys, and them saying to me, Eric was the only one among us who wasn't married, and so he volunteered for the hardest missions always because he wasn't married. And I tried to say some stuff, and these guys just had deadpan looks, and I got the feeling like, you know what? You don't get it anyway, so just shut up and walk away. It's not a team, a sports team. It's life and death with those guys. And they let me know it, and all I could do was just revere that. You know, it's Memorial Day weekend. We've got men and women who have served to that end, and, you know, just grateful for that. But that's the kind of relationship that Uriah and David would have had. And for David to go to sink this deeply, to order his death in an effort to cover up his own sin. So from him, that he may be struck down and die, and that's what happens. Down to verse 25, David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. 
So Uriah's been killed just the way that David intended. And now the messengers come back to give that report and David is saying, good. And go make sure that you go back and encourage. Exercise the gift of encouragement. So hypocritical, so false. And in verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Which is just another reason why I gotta believe that it was non-consensual. She was the one who was lamenting. It wasn't a group of people who were there to professionally cry out on her behalf. It was that she was the one who was sad and I have to believe it was in her soul. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That too is meant to come like a ton of bricks. It escaped everyone's noticed, probably, but not God's. Chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan. That's the first thing God does when he catches us. In his grace, is that in his grace, he sends the right person. Write that down. (laughs) Not everyone in our lives is meant to be, you know, kind of a perpetual messenger from God. But there are people in our lives that God will send at times into our lives with certain messages. And don't we want to be the kind of people who are going to pray, Father, help me not to miss those people. Help me to hear from you when you use them, when you, when you desire to speak to me through them. Help me to hear the message. God, so full of grace sent this prophet, Nathan, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up. And he grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And and David had had, that's all David needed to hear. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. David's anger. You know, be careful. 
We might want to be careful with our outrage, by the way, right? You know, I look on social media and I see a lot of, you know, I'm outraged about this or I'm outraged about that. You know, it might, I don't know, just as an aside perhaps, you know, let's be careful with how it is that we feel but then display our, our outrage. That was David's anger. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Grace not only sends the right person into your life, grace, God in his grace, isolates you and me and our sin. He loves us so much he will come after us and he will do whatever it takes to make sure that we're not looking over our shoulder. Are you talking about someone else? That we're not pointing the finger at something else. That we're not successful in our attempts to elude but that there's someone right there pointing at Nathan or pointing at David and saying, you're the man. It's you and no one else. And the blame gets laid at your feet and yours alone. You're the man. And thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, which is another discussion. (laughs) But I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. I gave you the whole kingdom, in other words. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. I'll double it. I'll triple it. I'll keep giving and giving and giving. That's the third thing that grace does, is it reminds us of all the ways we've been blessed from a long way back, all our lives. Even before we stepped into the fold, even before he got a hold of our heart, And we entered into that saving relationship with Jesus Christ even before then to have exercised his grace to have preserved us. And, you know, for all the knuckleheaded stuff that we ever did or, you know, for all the close calls we ever had or whatever it was, but that is grace. Look what I've done for you. And I would have done, you know, ten times. Grace reminds us of how blessed we have been. And then he says in verse nine, why? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You can disagree if you want, but I want to say that grace, and I'm talking about grace, I'm talking about God's perfect attribute of grace, execution of grace, but that grace, when God uses it and knows it's necessary, that grace attacks. Grace attacks. He is as forceful as he needs to be with his grace in an effort to make sure that he restores the relationship with his sons and daughters. He he, he will do that and he will spare nothing. He will do that at all costs. 
did that with his son. We'll do whatever it takes. But that in this instance, grace attacks, and it attacks in this way. He's saying, why? Why did you do it? You're the man. Don't look, don't look at anyone else. Look at me. You're the man. Why? I'm asking you a question I know and you know you can't answer. Why? Or at least you're so full of shame to even attempt to answer because you know that what you've done is wrong. And so in my grace, I'm going to um, isolate you. In my grace, I'm going to remind you of my blessing. And in my grace, I am going to uh, tackle you if that's what it takes. And that's what it took. And so David, down in verse 13, says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's enough from that chapter. Flip over to Psalm 51. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? You know, you know we, go to, we, go to, we go to Luke 15, and wonderful to remember the parable of the prodigal son, and that the son came to his senses, went home, and that the dad ran out to give him a hug, slew the fattened calf, there's three parables in Luke 15. One of the other two is Jesus. You know, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep in the open pasture and has lost one, will not go after that one which is lost until he finds it? That the shepherd, and Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, that the shepherd goes and, and looks, it says he looks until he finds and then he rescues. What kind of grace is that? Perfect. That grace cares for me. That, that grace will never let me go. I, I can't outsin that grace. I can't outrun that grace. I just can't. And David knew that. David knew that, and he says so in Psalm 51. This is his psalm of repentance. It says in the little caption up above, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. So how does he start? He said, you know what? There, there's, there's nothing I bring to the table except my sin. That's it. My evil. That's my contribution to this relationship. But your contribution is your perfect, eternal, ineffable character, including your mercy. And so I'm, I'm, I'm turning back to you and I'm not turning back on the basis of anything I have done. I'm turning back to you on the basis of who you are. Mercy. Have mercy on me, O oh God, according to your steadfast love. And then down in verse 4 where he says, famous line, against you and you only have I sinned. I mean, he certainly had sinned against Uriah. <laughs> He'd certainly sinned against Bathsheba. He had certainly sinned against Joab but having not been present where he should have been on the battlefield, 
and who knows how many others he had sinned against. But here in verse four, he said against you and you only have I sinned. Read that, understand that as at the end of the day, only God in his perfection and his sinlessness is able to come back and judge David for what he's done. So the sinlessness of God. You know, Bathsheba was a sinner too, even though she was very, very much sinned against by David. Uriah was a sinner too, he wasn't perfect. And so David realizes though, at the end of the day, there's only one against whom I have sinned. And it's the only one who is perfect. And that's you, oh God. That's the other thing, by the way. The reasons I've come to love this psalm so much is that David didn't write in verse four, against God and God alone have I sinned. He doesn't mean it to be a tutorial for us. He's not saying, hey, look at me and follow my example as to how I repent. He's so um, almost self-slain. Like I had been so much about myself before and, and, and just thinking about me and I don't want to go out and fight this year so I'm going to stay home and I don't want to involve myself with affairs of state so I'm going to take a nap. And, you know, oh, and I don't want to be alone in bed tonight so go ahead and, and wow, Bring her up here tonight. He's all about himself. And now you begin to see in chapter 51 here, Psalm 51, that he, he's coming to, to God and to God alone. He's not saying against God, and now look at my example of repentance. He's saying against you and you alone. And I don't know that this what I'm writing right now is going to go down through the centuries and that other believers are going to be reading this, that they're going to be learning. All I care about is you and I right now. And so against you and you only, Father, help me, is what he's saying. In verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, Oh God, it's all about the heart. Yeah, I remember because maybe Samuel told me that when he came to my house, my father Jesse's house, back there in chapter 16, and he started with my brother, Eliab. <laughs> he worked his way down through all my older brothers. And finally, Samuel told me that God said to him, Samuel, don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus said in the Beatitudes. Created me a clean heart. Oh God, that's what I need. I need a, a, a heart. I don't need a reputation. I don't need an assignment. I don't need a mission. I need a heart. Created me a clean heart. Oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That, 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 that's the next thing, kind of, you know. Get, give me a pure heart, but then also, Father, I need your presence. I need to know that you're there, that you haven't abandoned me. I need you. And the certainty that you're nearby. So give me that also. And then in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. In other words, make me want it. Make me want you. Uh, Give me back the desire. Stoke the fire in me. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. You know, that's what Paul is saying to the Romans in chapter 12, um, right about verse 9 or 10. Stoke that fire in, in me. Give me the desire, make me want you more. Verse 12. And then in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Awesome. You know what that is? That's right there. That's, that's evangelism and discipleship in one verse. You know, then I will teach transgressors your ways. For those who do not yet know you, I want to hit the street. I want to talk to them. I want to love them. I want to tell them about you. I want to be praying. I want to see them turn to you. The heart of an evangelist there. And David is saying, make me that way again. I used to be that way. But I need you to restore me. And then second line, and sinners will return to you. In other words, they're returning. They're not stepping into relationship with you for the first time, but that they're returning. So give me a heart, not just for the lost, but give me a heart for those who have Wandered. Give me a heart for the backslidden. Give me a heart for my friends, my family perhaps, who has, um, you know, they, they know what it means to walk with you, but that something has happened or some things have happened. They've gotten in a bad groove, maybe just like David, and they need to return. Give me a heart for those people to return to you also, not just for new people to meet you, For those you've known to get back to you, give me a heart for that. Give me a heart for all those things. And Father, again, I understand that I bring nothing to the table except my sin. But here's something else. It's occurring to me now at the end of my psalm that I'm bringing you. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. I'm broken about my sin. This is kind of where I'm at emotionally. Help me. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So this is where I'm at with myself. This is where I'm at with my me-centeredness. I just want to be done with it. And I'm coming to you in the first person, Father. All right. You know what let's do? Oh, yes. We've got time. 
It's 10 a.m. right now. So we still have got 15 minutes in the service. Let, let's do this. I, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray in the first person because David prays in the first person in Psalm 51. And so rather than see it as kind of me leading us in prayer, um, I'd encourage you to kind of, as you are led by the Spirit in your heart, kind of echo what it is that I'm saying, okay, to the Lord as I pray. And what I'm going to do is, in my prayer, kind of walk back through Psalm 51, verses 10 to 13, and just ask the Lord to do that for me, okay? And if you are prompted to want to do that as well, then you can silently join me in prayer. And I'm just going to pray for, I don't know, three, four minutes. And uh, then as I wrap up with uh, verse 13, um, worship team can come back and, and we'll sing a final song, okay? Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I want to come to you and just say to you, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Purify my heart. You know that's what I need. Make me right. Put your finger on the sin I haven't seen. Show that to me. Search me and know me. And sweep it clean. Purify my heart. Give me a pure, clean heart. Father, grant more of your presence. Make yourself more palpable in my life and to my spirit so that whether I'm with a lot of folks, whether I'm invested in the tasks of the day, whether I'm all by myself in the middle of the night, wherever it is, but that I know you're close. I know that you are close. And that you love me. Father, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Help me to walk humbly with you, that is. Help me to to walk with you. Help me to obey you. Help me to trust you. Help me to love you. Give me a desire for you. And Father, give me a desire for for people. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Father, give me a heart for the lost, for those who do not yet know you. And Father, for those that we've been praying for for a long time, strengthen me to keep praying and to not lose hope 
to keep my eyes on Christ. And Father, for those who, who have known you, at least have claimed to have known you, and they've been friends and family of mine, Father, help me to pray for them to return. Father, I pray for my own son right now. Not even sure if his would be the first time into the fold to begin that relationship with you or if he needs so desperately to return to you, but I pray for him, my own son, my only son. Father, I pray for him. So Father, hear my prayer, hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.